Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have carried out the most important investigative journalism of our generation, revealing to the public the inner workings of power through the release of voluminous documents. No other news organization has come close. This information has exposed the crimes, lies, and fraud of the powerful, sparking the judicial lynching of Assange, who awaits extradition to the U.S. in a high-security prison in London. It allowed people across the globe to understand what their governments are doing behind their backs. In this show, we will speak with the Italian investigative journalist Stefania Maurizzi, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies, about some of the most important information provided to the public by WikiLeaks. These include the U.S. war logs from Afghanistan and Iraq, a cache of 250,000 diplomatic cables and 800 Guantanamo Bay detainee assessment briefs, along with a 2007 collateral murder video in which U.S. helicopter pilots banter as they gun down civilians, including children, and two Reuters journalists in a Baghdad street. They include the 70,000 hacked emails copied from the accounts of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, that exposed the sleazy and corrupt world of the Clintons, including the donation of millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation by Saudi Arabia and Qatar, the $657,000 that Goldman Sachs paid to Hillary Clinton to give talks, a sum so large it can only be considered a bribe, and her dishonesty, telling the public she would work for financial reform while privately assuring Wall Street she would protect their interests. The cache of leaked emails show that the Clinton campaign interfered in the Republican primaries to ensure that Donald Trump was the Republican nominee, assuming he would be the easiest candidate to defeat. They exposed Clinton's advanced knowledge of questions in a primary debate and her role as the principal architect of the war in Libya, a war she believed would burnish her credentials as a presidential candidate. Joining me to discuss these and other revelations and their importance is Stefania Marizzi, who is an investigative journalist. She is the only international reporter who has worked on the entirety of the WikiLeaks secret trove of leaked documents. So uh, why don't we begin actually with a phone call you get in the middle of the night. It's in the book. Uh, and I'll let you take it from there. And you have one hour. So what I they call you, what, at two in the morning or something? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So first of all, thank you for having me, Chris. And I like the, your idea to discuss the very first time I worked as a media partner with WikiLeaks. It was back in 2009. And WikiLeaks was not as famous as uh, after the release of bombshells like collateral, the collateral murder video. And it was a tiny, little-known media organization. And I was looking at them uh, at least since 2008, when one of my sources, journalistic sources, in, in suddenly stopped talking to me. And it was at a point that I realized I needed the better source protection because the old-fashioned techniques that 
basically are still in work in these days in newsroom. The use of mobile phones, emails are no longer suitable in these days where heavy surveillance is the rule. So it was at that point that I realized that I needed good source protection. And since I'm a mathematician, for me, it was natural to look at cryptography as a tool to protect sources. And at that time, uh, there was only a media organization in the world using cryptography systematically. And that media organization was not the New York Times. It was not the Guardian. It was not the Washington Post. It was a tiny media organization founded by Julian Assange Wikileaks. And so I started looking at this work, but I had no contacts. I was just looking at them and the kind of, of documents they were publishing, publishing and you know, I was deeply, deeply impressed. And I was deeply impressed, first of all, for the kind of very sensitive document they were able to, to get, but also because of the courage. They were very courageous people because, uh, for example, when they published the Guantanamo Manual and the Pentagon asked them to remove the document, that document from their website, they said no. And, you know, in those days, it was very... You know, it was not really common to have a media organization say no to the Pentagon. Quite the opposite. After the 9-11, we had, uh, you know, media very um, reporting whatever the intelligence uh, organization, organizations were, were telling them, uh, with very few exceptions, of course. And so I look at them. But I didn't know them and I was deeply interested in them, in their work and learning from them. So uh, it was that night uh, in July 2009 that suddenly they, they contacted me. They had my contacts because I had approached them and uh, it was in the middle of the night and I was sleeping and it was very sticky and hot. And the last thing I wanted to do was to wake up and <laughs> answering my phone. Uh, but my phone kept ringing. So at the end, I woke up and uh, I, I was told, this is Wikileaks. And I could barely understand what was going on. I mean, I was sleeping. Uh, and I understood that I had to rush to my computer and download the file because I had an hour, just an hour to download the file. And after an hour, they would remove it because they were, uh, others could download it. So I went to my computer, I downloaded the file and I started listening. It was uh, an audio file and it was a, an, a very interesting audio file about the garbage crisis in Naples. In 2009, basically, Naples was drawn in into garbage and the trash and uh, we had these images of Naples uh, drowning in uh, trash uh, which basically uh, hit the headlines all around the world so it defines what the alleged it was a conversation a secretly recorded conversation uh, by um, uh, some people who had a conversation with a councillor um discussing the alleged role of the Italian secret services in this garbage crisis. As many people don't realize that garbage is a a really important resource for mafia, for the mafias. They are trafficking this, um, this trash. 
So this counselor was discussing the alleged uh, state mafia deals behind this crisis. And without WikiLeaks, uh, this information would have probably never surfaced. I remember the morning after I called the, the counselor and I verified the files. WikiLeaks had done his own verification process, which for me was really important because it confirmed that WikiLeaks was working as a media organization. It didn't just put online whatever it received. It did its own verification process. And then, of course, it was trying to do its verification process in parallel with with other journalists, because, of course, no newsroom has the technical and journalistic skills to verify whatever it receives. And even traditional media often partner to verify and publish information with with an impact. So for me, it was really important that they wanted to verify this information to establish whether it was genuine and to understand the local context. They didn't just put on the internet whatever they received. And uh, I verified in parallel with them, and uh, there was no doubt the file was genuine. And at that time, I was working for the Italian leading news magazine, L'Espresso, which had done important work on the garbage crisis and the role of the mafias and so on. So I was even able to put in the context of this information. And that was the first time I was, I worked as a media partner of WikiLeaks before the collateral murder. And after that, basically after uh, something like six months, uh, WikiLeaks published the collateral murder video and they, of course, became so famous, so, so uh, well-known all around the world. And since then, I basically never stopped working on the, on the WikiLeaks secret documents. I have worked on the full documentation and I have worked on this case for the last 13 years. But you have to realize that while I had no problems, I had some intimidation. And if you want, we can discuss what kind of intimidation. Uh, I was uh, physically attacked in Rome, stolen important documentation. I was physically spied inside the Ecuadorian embassy. And I had several intimidation, but I was never put in prison. I was never arrested. Whereas as for Julian Assange, he has never again known freedom. That's, this is also one of the reasons I, I'm so, uh, focused on this case because it's like you, you know, it's like your editors tell you to go out with a colleague and your colleague, uh, falls out of a cliff and you don't abandon it. You don't abandon him. You, you try to call people for help. You try to make people realize that this person is in danger. His, uh, his uh, life hangs in balance. And this is what also I'm trying to do. In addition to this, I have been litigating my FOI case to obtain the full documentation on Julia Sanja WikiLeaks for the last seven years which has been very, very intense. So this leak essentially tied the intelligence services, the Italian intelligence services, to the mafia in Naples. Would that be a summation of what you found out? Yeah. I mean, there was a kind of negotiation according to the source, according to the to the counselor discussing this crisis. There was a kind of negotiation between the state 
and the mafia about this crisis. I think this is something lost on many uh, U.S. viewers and readers, and that is the impact that WikiLeaks has had in countries, not just Italy, but Tunisia and Haiti. Maybe you can talk about the impact in Tunisia, the impact in Haiti, um, because suddenly countries around the globe were able to see not only what their governments were doing, but the interference, especially in Haiti, of the U.S. Embassy in an attempt to crush a drive to raise the minimum wage, which I can't remember what it is, $2 an hour or something. But, but talk a little bit about the global impact these revelations had. Well, of course, for the first time, uh, if you are referring to the Afghan war logs, Iraq war logs, or the cables, all these files allowed for the first time to access to uh, this information, which was secret. So, I mean, there was no way to obtain this information unless you got a copy uh, uh, after 25 years, 30 years, maybe 40 years, when no one cared anymore. Maybe the historians, the professional historians care at that point, but uh, it was no longer relevant for the public opinion to take informed decisions, of course. So that was the explosive part of this uh, uh, secret documentation. For the first time, we got access to um, secret information about how the Afghan war, war worked, about the Iraq war about the U.S. diplomacy and their uh, deals, their pressure, their political pressure, their uh, crimes behind the scene. And we can we could get access as uh, facts were still very relevant, not after 20 or 30 years or 40 years. And we could ac get access without uh, many, without the redactions, because when you requ request these documents using freedom of information, you often got completely redacted documents to an extent that they are useless, you know, as a journalist or as a citizen, you, they, have, they are of little use. So this information, this information was uh, really game-changing, really uh, allowed to take, take the public opinion, the, the decision they need, you know, the information they need to take informed decision as citizens. I want to ask you about the 700 and 706, 910,000 secret files of the Afghan worlds. Before I do, just briefly tell us uh, the importance of WikiLeaks in the Arab Spring in Tunisia and the importance of WikiLeaks in terms of Haiti. Uh, those are two good examples of uh, the impact WikiLeaks had. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, I when it comes to the WikiLeaks cables, for the first time, they, the um, citizen, citizen of these countries were <laughs> information uh, restricted, uh, are unavailable. They could access their, the frank assessment about their regimes by the U.S. diplomacy. And while publicly the U.S. diplomacy was, uh, you know, uh, conducting diplomacy as business as usual, but in the secrecy of their correspondence, they were, they were uh, absolutely not diplomatic at all about these regimes. So for the first time, this 
population could access to, could look at the reality of the regime and to, and were vindicated. And this made them to react to this, to this kind of information and to try to oppose the regime, to try to change the regime. And this is why Amnesty International has credited WikiLeaks and the WikiLeaks cables uh, with uh, with being with having an important role in the Arab Spring in these countries, of course, and Haiti, because it also exposed U.S. interference in Haiti. The the I mean, absolutely. I mean, a absolutely. very concerted effort on the part of the U.S. government to crush the labor movement, to break the movement for to raise the minimum wage, because there are all those sweatshops, of course, which are owned by U.S. corporations. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And the same, I mean, uh, even if in in the case of other countries, they didn't unleash a revolution, they still unleash really important political awareness about the political interference, about the uh, the kind of um, crimes exposed by these documents, which could not be denied at this point, the kind of human rights violations, the kind of uh, political pressure to grant impunity, for example, to the CIA. Uh, in the WikiLeaks cables, we got evidence, undisputable evidence, uh, about the political pressure on Italian authorities to grant impunity uh, to the CIA agents responsible for the extraordinary rendition of Abu Omar. And of course, we could imagine that kind of political pressure. We could imagine that kind of political interference. Of course we could. But it is one matter to imagine. It is another matter to get evidence and to get their names and to get their conversation. That's why these documents are important. And in fact, no one denied. No one tried, no one even tried to uh, file a libel of case and say this is not true. Let's talk about that. This, this is 2003. The CIA kidnaps Hassan Mustafa Osama Nasser uh, in Milan. Yeah. And, uh, and because of WikiLeaks, well, there are finally 26, I think, people charged. But talk about what that exposed and what. Uh, it, it, yeah. Yeah, basically, the CIA kidnapped this uh, Egyptian citizen who had um, who had asked for asylum to Italy, and he was under investigation for international terrorism. So the Italian prosecutors in Milan uh, suddenly had their <laughs> person under investigation, which basically had vanished. They could not find where he had ended up, and uh, they were very they were very brilliant and using phone metadata, the Italian prosecutors were able to uh, basically identify 26 American citizens, almost all of them CIA agents, uh, responsible for this kidnapping. Kidnapping in the middle of the day, at the noontime on the 17th February 2003. And they were bright. The Italian prosecutors were absolutely, you know, bright. They were able to identify them and to acquire evidence of this kidnapping and the role of the CIA and how this 
rendition works, how he had uh, Abu Omar had been transferred to uh, the U.S. base Aviano, where the U.S. stores nuclear weapons in Italy, because as you probably know, Italy is the country with the highest, the European country with the highest number of U.S. nuclear weapons on its soil, and the only European country with two nuclear bases. And one of these is Aviano, where Abu Omar was transferred. And then he was transferred to Egypt and brutally tortured. And so our prosecutors were brilliant to to identify the 26 Americans and to uh, charge them. They were charged and they were put on trial in absentia because in Italy you can put people on trial even if they are not available on the Italian soil because, they, of course, they have left Italy immediately after the kidnapping. And uh, and they were able to get uh, final sentences for all of them, between six years and nine years in prison. However, none of them spent uh, a single uh, day in prison. Why? Because basically six justice ministers, both on the left and on the right, both progressive and conservatives, uh, basically refused to forward the arrest warrant to the U.S., they refused to, uh, to send the arrest warrant to the U.S. And so at the end of the day, Italy, the only country which had been, uh, uh, which had been, um, uh, we were very proud that our prosecutor were able, had been able to carry out justice in this case. Uh, at the end of the day, Italy ended up <laughs> condemned by the European Court of Human Rights. Why? Because they, we had grant impunity to these CIA agents, and none of them went to prison. So we could have imagined that there was some kind of political pressure on our politicians because our prosecutors and our judges had done everything to arrest them, to identify them, arrest them, and to sentence them. So it was not the Italian justice problem. The Italian justice <laughs> had worked perfectly well. They had been efficient and uh, and uh, absolutely uh, independent from uh, our judges and prosecutors. The problem were the politicians, because as the cables revealed, the U.S. was really aware, the U.S. diplomacy was aware that there was no way to force the prosecutors and the judges to stop their investigation because the Italian prosecutors are drastically independent. They, they, the U.S. diplomacy writes, they are fiercely independent. So since they could not put pressure on the prosecutors and on the judges, they put pressure on the politicians. Because at the end of the day, extraditions, even the, in, the case, in all cases of extradition, at the end of the day, and that's really important to understand in the case of Julian Assange, extradition is a political process. It is a process where you have politicians acting, allowing or denying uh, extradition. So the U.S. knew that they could put pressure on the politicians, even they they were unable to put pressure on the, the prosecutors and the judges. So they put pressure on the on the politicians, on all of them, from the you know from the Enrico Letta who was uh, uh, in their government, a Romano Prodi uh, leftist government, to the 
you know, to the um, Ignazio La Russa, who is today uh, in the, the, is basically the president of the Italian Senate in these days with the Meloni government. So they put pressure on all of them. And basically our Italian politicians basically refused to forward the arrest warrant to the U.S. As a result, none of these people ended up in prison. None of these people basically had spent a single day in prison. And, uh, you know, um, without the WikiLeaks documents, as I said, we could have imagined, but we could have never have obtained the evidence, the solid evidence, their names, their names, what they had discussed. And these cables are tremendously important to obtain this evidence of political pressure to grant impunity to the CIA. Let's talk about the Afghan war logs and the Iraq war logs. Um, uh, these are with the uh, Iraq war logs, that's 391,832 secret files. Afghan war logs, 76,910 secret files. What did they reveal? They are amazing documents. Let me say, I work so much on these documents. They are reports from the uh, from the field, from the uh, uh, theater who were uh, uttered by the soldiers who were there. And they basically, <clears throat> uh, they provide a snapshot uh, of the war. Whatever happened on the theater of war uh, from January 2004 to December 2009. So six years of war. Uh, described without any filter, without any uh, kind of, um, uh, of, without any propaganda, without, so at that point you could see the war as it is on the, on the full, on the entire theater of war. And you could compare what the propaganda machine was telling to the public and what was really happening. And that's the real value of this document. It's uh, uh, it, it, the value, of course, is uh, what they reveal: the number of civilians, innocent civilians who were killed, and the secret units like Task Force Three Seven Three. But the value here is that for the first time we could see these wars as they were. Without, uh, you know, as they were happening, not after 30 years, after 40 years, and never before, with the exception of the Pentagon Papers leaked by, by, leaked by, um, Daniel Asberg, never before it had been possible to look at the war as it is, as it is ongoing and, uh, at uh, having uh, this access to secret information about what was going on. That's, these are tremendously important documents. And to these days, they remain the only source. If you take the Afghan war logs, for example, they remain the only public source about uh, the um, killing, extrajudicial killing, uh, and the only source about the uh, innocent civilians killed before 2007, 2007, I asked the UN mission in Afghanistan, which basically, basically compli- uh, compiles the statistics 
And they said there are no reliable data. With the exception of these Afghan warlords, there are no reliable data about civilian deaths before 2007. So these documents are tremendously important, and we keep consulting them. We keep accessing them uh, for our journalistic work. As for the Iraq warlords, it's the same. You have access to these, these secret reports on the war in Afghanistan as it was happening between January 2004 and December 2009, six years of wars. And you could compare the propaganda with what was actually happening. And uh, reputable organizations like uh, the Iraq Body Count was able to discover and to document 15,000 civilian deaths never accounted before. These are not statistics. These are human beings. These are human beings. So these documents are tremendously important and they remain the only public source about this, uh, these two wars. Well, they expose the lies that had been repeatedly told Absolutely. about the war. That, the, that on the one hand, these are internal communications about the reality and the public statements bore a little resemblance to their own reporting. Yeah, like Task Force 373, which was completely unknown. It was a secret unit. And uh, the value of this document is <laughs> that we discovered the involvement of the secret unit never disclosed before and how they have covered this information, how they, the propaganda had uh, avoided mentioning these uh, special units and, and, and their brutality, the brutality of their operations, of course. Great. That was Stefania Marisi, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. <laughs>